No, the truth is I'm, I've got a terrible sense of direction. <laughs> and this is, it's something my, my wife is, is constantly kind of amazed at how bad I am. I came in like disheveled, covered in grease with, I think just a kind of, um, like an A4 bit of paper I printed out describing what I wanted to do. And that is definitely not how you are meant to approach a publisher spent weeks telling me that the people over the border were bandits and you know they were thieves and I was going to be robbed and even though I kind of you know I took this with a pinch of salt there was always this kind of it's hard not to, to sort of hear that from dozens of people and not internalize it a little bit. My guest for this episode is Nick Hunt. Nick has walked and written across most of Europe. He's the author of three travel books, Outlandish, Where the Wild Winds Are, and Walking the Woods and the Water, and has recently published his debut novel, Red Smoking Mirror. His books have twice been finalists for the Edward Stanford Travel Book of the Year and have been translated into five languages. His articles have appeared in numerous publications, including The Guardian, The Irish Times, and Geographical, and he's also an editor and co-director of The Dark Mountain Project. I first discovered Nick's writing this summer, transfixed by his epic walk from the Hook of Holland to Istanbul in Walking the Woods and the Water, and I knew that I had to have him on the show to discuss his adventures and the art and craft of storytelling. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave a review, like, comment and subscribe. It will mean the world to me and will help this podcast reach as many people as possible. You don't want to miss this. Enjoy. Nick. Welcome to the show. My first question for you, in life, what's the most important thing you've ever had to pitch for? Whoa. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the thing that springs to mind is the pitching for my first book, because that was the thing that led to all the other books. And looking back now, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't have a clue about how you were meant to approach a publisher for a book. I didn't have an agent. I do now. But then this was back in 2011. I was preparing to walk across Europe in the footsteps of the travel writer, Patrick Lee Fermor. So I had this kind of dream. I knew when I wanted to set out. I knew I wanted to write about it. I figured that somebody would be interested in a book about this. And... Well, I, I just walked into a publisher that was called Arcadia because I knew that they'd published some of Patrick Lee Fermor's stuff before. Awesome. And honestly, I turned up on my bike. I had um, like grease all over my hands because my chain had come off. So I'd had to kind of wrestle the chain back on in central London somewhere, locked it to a railing somewhere, came in like disheveled, covered in grease with, I think, just a kind of... Um, like an A4 bit of paper I'd printed out describing what I wanted to do. And that is definitely not how you are meant to approach a publisher. And I think it was just, it was luck. The people in there, um, Gary Pulsifer and Andrew Haywood, who were running the company, were just receptive at the time. They were interested in the idea. Um, it was a good moment for them. You know, I just got lucky, I think. And Brilliant they story. had the kind of generosity to sort of indulge me um completely inexperienced and unpublished and i remember during that um andrew haywood said to me 
he listened to what I was saying for a long time. And then he said, I've got a question for you. Are you a good writer? <laughs> <laughs> and I was really kind of, um, I, I wasn't expecting someone to ask me so bluntly. And I thought I'd have to kind of be a lot more strategic and I had to think about yeah. it. And I just said, yes. And, and he was like, okay, <laughs> great. And then we went from there and that ended up, you know, they, they did sign a contract with me and I went on to do that walk. They didn't end up publishing the book because of various problems they had and it ended up yeah. being published by someone else. But that was how I got through the door was literally just by turning up and what an amazing uh, story. being there at the right time. Did, were you unannounced or had you managed to get an appointment with them? No, I, I did have an appointment. I just sent an email right. to them. Yeah. Okay. And it's one of the advantages of, of a small publisher in that, you know, it was, you don't have to go through kind of layers of bureaucracy to get anywhere. Um, yeah. It was just the yeah, right, right moment. That's great. I mean, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because sometimes, like, we can overthink those moments as well. So I, I'm sure there was something in the kind of raw energy of you turning up like slightly disheveled that was actually attractive, especially because it it fits so well with the kind of theme of the book and, uh, you know, what you what you were going to go and experience. So um, I, I'd love to dig into that a little bit later on. If, if that's the if that's the kind of uh, most important pitch what's what's the one that's got away have you have you ever had a a moment where you kind of reflect and go oh, i'd really love to have worked on that project or i'd love to have seen that thing happen yeah there's, i mean there's a there's a bunch of there's yeah there was certainly a um a book again that i proposed which was turned down um because they didn't think there'd be enough interest in it and i should have fought for it but I kind of went, oh, you know, they're probably right. They know what they're talking about. And then a couple of years later, of course, a book comes out on that very um, subject that is right. you know, going to do very well. But it's yeah. not the book I'd have written. And I think you can't, yeah. I think the lesson with that is I should have just had confidence in my idea and um, and taken it elsewhere and, and not kind of caved at the slightest kind of query about whether it was a good idea or not. Interesting. I mean, you're a, a very successful non-fiction writer. Your work's been included in, in the best British travel writing of the 21st century. You've just published your debut novel, which is Red Smoking Mirrors. Um, what's what's your story? Did you always want to be a writer? Have you been kind of, you know, telling stories since you were a, a babe in arms? Yeah, the short answer is yes. I was always writing and always wanted to do that. So it's been, you know, the, the sort of consistent thread of my, of my life. And it came, I mean, the first book in, in the air quotes that I wrote, um, I had a friend, this must've been aged like six, six or seven at the oldest. And my yeah. friend James, uh, went through a stage of, he liked copying, um, children's books and just you know copying the pictures writing the same text on the same pages and making yeah. sort of facsimiles of them and he was making a copy of a noddy book and <laughs> i wanted to copy him so i i had a book called the pancake king i don't remember anything about it but it was called <laughs> the pancake king and i started drawing the the title page the front cover 
but I didn't. I got the you know the the, the formatting wrong, so I just managed to write the panker, and then I'd <laughs> run out of space, and I was about to tear it up and you know go into a half. And my mum saw it and she said, oh, why don't you just, um, don't throw it away. Why don't you just write a different story that's called The Panker? And then so I wrote a, a, the story was about a monster called The Panker who gets caught by a hunter and then escapes from the net. And I think that was it. But that Amazing. was the first. And it was a thing that I can really kind of look back and credit my mum for yeah, encouraging she... me to do that. Yeah. Like so often that would have ended up in the bin. Yeah. And I went on from there just to make like lots of little, you know, uh, books stapled together. Um, and then just sort of continued, uh, continued writing from there. But I always love telling stories, I guess. And whether it's nonfiction or the novel I've just written or these kind of, you know, odd little short stories that I was writing 10, 20 years ago. Uh, it's always just been that the way that I, the way that I, I'm, I'm kind of happiest in a way. Were your family creative? Like, did, is there a, is, is there a history of writers in your, in your immediate family? Yes, there is. But, um, my mum was, um, in theatre, she was an actor and then, a theatre director. Her dad was a director and also wrote books about Irish theatre, mostly. Okay. And then my dad, who I didn't grow up with because he left when I was quite young, but I you know, was aware of him out there in the world being a writer. He went to Hollywood and he was a screenwriter, still, still is. Wow. Uh, so I think that it definitely had a, an influence on me, kind of knowing that a writer was a thing that you could be. Yeah. And, and presumably, I mean, your, your parents created space for that, that creativity. I've got a, a nine year old daughter. And, um, one of the things that I, I notice sometimes at school is that, you know, they, oh, we didn't have time to finish the story and you're like, oh no, like how, how do you, how do you encourage young people to, to live in their imaginations a little bit more rather than be kind of ticking, ticking the boxes? Did you, how did, how did you carry that through the kind of sticky teenage years? Cause I'm imagining that, you know, writing's not that cool when you're 12 or 13 or, or was it where you went to school? I mean, no, it wasn't, but I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't cool. So that, that was, was okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was definitely a kind of identity that I put on like a, you know, like a band t-shirt, like you do when you're a teenager, you're trying out different things. Yeah. Um, and so I was writing short stories around that time from what I remember. And interestingly, what I found, so I went on from there to do creative writing um, at University of East Anglia. Mm -hmm. And I found a big box of files. You know, it was back in the days when you actually printed stuff out at university and kind of handed things in on paper. So I've got all yeah. these bits of writing I did age 20, you know, 19, 20, 21. And what really struck me is that they were much worse than what I was writing when I was 16 or 17 Interesting. because they were painfully self-conscious you know <laughs> I was kind of 
a young adult desperately trying to emulate who I thought of as the great, you know, important voices of our, of our age. Yeah. And you can really see that I was, you know, aping various people badly. And <laughs> there was a kind of innocence when I was younger than that, that I didn't, I didn't really care. I didn't, I wasn't trying to be anyone. I just wanted to express certain things. I didn't mm. think they'd be read. I don't think it, it even though it occurred to me that I was even doing this for someone else to read them. Yeah. And obviously they're kind of terrible in that because they're written by a teenage me, but they, I found them a lot more palatable than, than my slightly later stuff when I was just, you know, thinking, overthinking everything and trying to be various things that I wasn't. Yeah. That's, that's really fascinating. I, I can see a real parallel to your kind of writer training, if you like, to, to my actor training. There was a, a, a phrase that always rings in my ear from, from one of my uh, acting teachers at drama school, which was leave yourself alone. And it, and it was all about that, that idea of, you know, stop pushing, stop trying to show people and, and, and be, um, and, and that's something that, you know, I, I try and take into the corporate work that I do now with, with clients is just kind of getting them, uh, comfortable in that idea of presence and and being able to share of themselves without pushing and without the need for you know love and adoration at the end of it just sort of trust that if you're if you're speaking your truth then people will respond to that um yeah where 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 did the where did the travel bug come from then if you because if you were doing kind of creative writing you've got influences of your mum in theatre your dad's a, a screenwriter what what made you go I'm I'm going to go down this path instead well I didn't um I didn't really intend to kind of be a travel writer I think I I wanted to write fiction I wanted to write novels um didn't really know how to do that. And then it came about really because of this walk across Europe that was always a kind of dream in my head that I realized I had to do, otherwise it would, you know, it would just disappear. Mm -hmm. And then, so the sort of travel writing career came out of that, but the love of travel, I mean, it's, it goes back again. I think we didn't travel a lot when I was, when I was young. Um, I mean, not outside the UK that often, yeah. but. I, I just, yeah, I always felt like just kind of stepping into, stepping into a thrilling other world. You know, I remember just even being excited driving through France that the, the sign, the road signs looked different. You know, even that was just kind of thrilling to me that the colors were yeah. different and the, the signs on shops said different things. Um, so I think it was, yeah, it was always just, I, something that deeply excited me and felt it felt important you know it felt important to to see new things and know what was over the next the next horizon and around the next corner though i do remember the, the first the first time i went abroad was to greece when i was seven i think with my mum and my my godmother and you know it's just kind of quite a special holiday because my mum was quite broke when we were growing up so it was, I knew it was a kind of a big thing and, um, I was crushingly disappointed on arrival because I'd imagined, I think I'd imagined we were going to ancient Greece. <laughs> so I saw people 
like driving cars and motorbikes and it was like well this is just like back home <laughs> where are the horses and the, the togas so i think I, I thought we were time traveling right but you know but remember that holiday is, is kind of with a vividness that i don't remember things for years later nearly as as strongly or clearly so with the with the walking the woods and the water you you mentioned being in inspired by that original journey what what was the catalyst like how how old were you when you when you did the walk um i was 30 set off when i was okay. 30 so so was it kind of like early midlife crisis or was it like something that were you were you pitching to yourself or were you pitching to the world that this is mm. something that i can do what what was the catalyst that's interesting yeah i think i think my midlife crisis is you know still to come maybe <laughs> um but it was something that i for about 10 years i'd had this idea so it was kind of pitching to myself in a way but i remember having the realization you know with that i was about to turn 30 which now of course feels wonderfully young but at the time it felt like you know a big deal i was leaving my 20s and you know i think i became aware for the first time that time is limited and the things that are dreams in your head you have to actually do them otherwise they're just not going to happen um and so somebody i can't remember who it was but someone gave me some really good advice and said, well, you know, if you want to do something and you're worried that you might not do it, just tell 10 people that you're going to do this thing, set a time, say like I'm, I'm a year today, I'll set off to do this thing. I've got a year to prepare for it. Tell 10 people. And then if you don't do it, you'll, you'll these 10 people will be kind of bugging you and yeah. they'll be aware that you're not doing the thing that you said you were going to do. And I think it really helped. And I did that. I told 10 people that I knew and loved. Um, and then that, that kind of helped make it real because it, I had witnesses. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing journey and it's a beautifully written book. I, I read it while I was on holiday this summer and I literally couldn't, couldn't put it down. Um, that, that kind of journey, it, it you were so present or it felt like you were so present. I'm a, I'm a massive planner, right? So, you know, if I'm, if I'm leaving the house, I need to almost kind of create a tick sheet of, of what I'm going to take with me and what the potential weather might be. But there was, there was so much space because you were on foot that I presume you, you couldn't plan for every eventuality. So in that year of build up, what, what were you doing to get yourself ready to, to go on that walk? I mean, I did, I did reach out to what I discovered was this kind of community of people who loved Patrick Lee Fermor's books. I had no idea that he was such a kind of well-known writer, actually. Okay. Um, you know, I thought it was something that I'd sort of discovered. None of my friends had heard of him, and I think it end, sort of ended there. But obviously, he was kind of adored by millions of people. So I sort of managed to tap into a sort of very loose network of fans who were scattered across different countries in Europe to give me these kind of anchor points. So I had, you know, people to meet in a few different places, which helped kind of set the, set the route, I guess. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I mean, I wrote in the book that I didn't, I didn't really do a lot of planning. I was quite, I wanted to do it with the same kind of spirit of, um, of adventure that he had mm. and not, you know, in the time I was, I was doing my walk, I could have looked up everything, you know, looked up Google maps and photographs of everything and mm -hmm. Wikipedia pages about every, you know, every landmark. And I consciously avoided doing that because I wanted to be surprised at what I was finding. Yeah. So I had a, you know, I, I had the route and I knew where I was going. Um, even though some bits of it were a bit hazy, but I think with often with travel and stuff I've done since then, I try and have a kind of, it's like having a skeleton of the journey with a couple of points where you know where you're going to be, um, you know, if, if that's just as simple as like booking a room somewhere and then a few days mm -hmm. later there. So you've just got kind of points of contact and then trying to leave everything else a little bit hazy to give room for tangents and random encounters and, you know, just plans changing or yeah. wanting to stop for a couple of days because, uh, you know, you find somewhere that you love. You love. Were you a, were you a kind of seasoned map reader and a navigator before you left? Or was that something you'd learned en route? Um, no, the truth is I'm, I've got a terrible sense of direction <laughs> and this is, it's something my, my wife is, is constantly kind of amazed at how bad I am. I have no intuitive sense of where I'm going. You know, some people just have this, this kind of, you know, compass sense. I really don't, uh, I, I got lost a lot, uh, and kind of had to make that part of the, part of the journey. Mm. I mean, in some way, you know, like even Europe is, is, is wide and is, but it's still, you'll always find kind of people somewhere and, yeah. you know, depending on where you are, I, I never, I was never kind of out of contact for days. Um, mm. but yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm okay at reading a map. Um, but pff, <laughs> You know, I, I, I don't have that kind of natural ability to find my way that I know some people do. Were you, were you ever scared along the journey? As I kind of reflect on the, the kind of story and the places that you went to, I, I think of my 30 year old self and think maybe, maybe I would have had a, a greater sort of sense of adventure and, and uh, less adversity to risk than I do now that I have a family. And, and I think those things have changed. You know, I remember walking the Pennine way or the first sort of five days of the Pennine way when I was about 26 on my own with a, with a backpack and getting lost in the fog and all of that sort of stuff was fine. And I think if I put myself in that situation now, I'd be a bit more like, Oh, where's the GPS? And, you know, have I told, have I told people my route? Um, but you were, you were certainly in the latter stages of that journey, you know, wild camping for want of a, a better phrase, um, you know, in, in some pretty remote areas. Do you, do you remember having kind of anxiety about what was coming next or did you get into the flow, uh, as you, as you progressed along that path? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I I did get more and more into the flow, which worked to counter the fact I was going into places which felt wilder and more unknown. Mm. And there was definitely going through Eastern Europe from Slovakia to Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, and then into Turkey that at every one of those borders, people had spent weeks telling me that the people over the border were bandits and, you know, they were thieves and I was going to be robbed. And even though I kind of, you know, I took this with a pinch of salt, there was always this kind of, it's hard not to, to no, sort of yeah. hear that from dozens of people and not internalize it a little bit. Hmm. So there was that, there was the kind of absorption of other people's tribal, you know, ancient prejudices mm. that are still very, very much alive in some parts of, of Europe. Um, and I mean, the, the kind of sleeping out was interesting because you get a kind of sense and it's, it is quite an intuitive thing. I'm not intuitively good at finding direction, but I think I'm quite good at intuiting whether a place feels okay. Yeah. And this is obviously kind of fallible, but I would, I would camp in places that felt kind of safe and there was yeah. nothing really definable about that, but just mm. the kind of cover was right. There was certain distance away from places often camping by rivers for some reason felt like I had more right to kind of be on the banks of a river than in the middle of a field. Interesting. And so, yeah. And, but there, you know, obviously were places that I did feel uncomfortable because you don't know really where you are, who's around, what kind of yeah. people they are, what the local sort of problems might be. Mm. And then dogs were my, my kind of greatest daily fear. <laughs> um, after, after Slovakia, you know, you, you encounter unfriendly dogs more and more and Romania, yeah. which was a country that I deeply loved. And I think was the, you know, the happiest walking I had was in Romania, mm. but there are, you know, packs of feral dogs. And if you're, if they think you're in your, their, their territory, they'll attack you. And up in the mountains, there's these huge, terrifying sheep dogs that, you know, again, if they think you're after the sheep. And the shepherd is over the next hill out of sight because yeah. they kind of cover a huge area. So I had several uh, incidences of, of just fleeing dogs or, or kind of fighting them off with my stick. Jesus. That was the, the biggest, single biggest threat to my, my legs was from dogs for sure. <laughs> you, and then uh, I think just while we're, on, while we're on that, I just want to add one thing that I think is... Yeah is worth saying. And it's something that I wrote about a bit in my latest travel book, Outlandish. Um, and I don't think travel writers talk about this enough, but it's easy to write about, you know, dog attacks and being scared of thieves and bandits because that's kind of mm. big, exciting, adventurous stuff. But there's also, sometimes I just didn't want to be a foreigner. I didn't want to be seen, looked at, you know, with my beard and rucksack yeah. and dirty clothes you walk down the street of a kind of perfectly normal town or village and people are looking at you wondering what you're doing um and so sometimes i just have kind of plain social anxiety i wouldn't want to get out of bed in the morning and kind of go through a day 
of being the outsider who doesn't mm. know where they're going, can't speak the language, you know, sort of it wandering idiot that everybody's kind of aware of. So yeah, sometimes I just wanted to not be there. And I think in a lot of travel writing, that isn't people project this idea of kind of, you know, adventuring into the unknown. But I think I'd imagine most people do have days like that. Yeah. The battle with the self as well as with the, the external forces you, you talk yeah, and with boredom and tiredness yeah. and everything else and, and, and having to, you know, mo motivate yourself to put your feet in front of each other, I suppose. Uh, there's a there's there's definitely a metaphor there for life <laughs> i think <laughs> i mean you uh, the one thing that really strikes me is that as you as you walked you know slowly uh, and you talk about the idea of you know bicycles seeming fast and cars seeming you know off off the charts you you experience that change in landscape changing culture but at quite a, a glacial pace, it, did it did it kind of make you feel that humanity is is different, or that actually there is much more that binds us together than than that separates us? I mean, the wonderful thing about walking is that you, yeah, you do see you see the links between cultures mm. and the the kind of indefinable moments where one culture has kind of bled into another one and that can be you know in in clues like you know the food and the whether they drink beer or wine um what kind of houses they live in and so the, yeah there were kind of i mean there were moments of of culture, you know, complete shift. And one of those was going yeah. from Austria to Slovakia, where suddenly, you know, it was Eastern Europe, even though that, that isn't a geographical thing. It's a kind mm. of cultural term. Um, but the, the, you know, the buildings were different. I remember the smells being different things. Mm. Yeah. Suddenly the smell was different. I couldn't quite define what that, what that was. So there were some kind of hard points of change, but I think, for the most part, it was a, you know, slowly seeing the kind of Germanic culture sort of blending into the Slavic and then into the mm -hmm. Hungarian and Romanian. And you could see the, yeah, see the blend between those things. So I think it's, it's harder to see that if you're traveling any other way, really. Mm. I mean, one, one thing that is becoming more kind of prevalent i suppose in in terms of wellness and well-being is this idea of kind of walking meditation and and really your whole journey seems to be to a certain extent a a walking meditation what what did you learn about yourself over the the course of that what a year year was it it wasn't quite a year it's about seven and a half months seven months okay that's still a long time to be yeah yeah, on, yeah. On the outsider. I mean, I, I definitely learned that I can keep going and that I can be quite bloody minded about finishing something. Mm. Um, because there, you know, there were days that were sublime and, and it was like being in a kind of walking dream 
or a meditation. There were other days when it was just painful, repetitive, boring, exhausting, and I just wanted to get to, you know, get to somewhere I could go to sleep. Mm. Um, but there was the, the, the kind of the biggest, um, the biggest, um, problem I had was getting, um, Achilles tendonitis, which was in sort of South Germany, yeah. um, just before the snow came and being told the doctor said, you know, this could be five days. It could be five weeks. It could be five months. I, I can't tell you, um, how long before you can walk again. And it ended up being several weeks that I had to stay still mm. and people were, you know, people I was in touch with at home were saying, well, you know, you, you might have to come, come back then kind yeah. of call the whole thing off, you know, maybe try it again in a year. And it, I was so determined to carry on. Um, I ended up, you know, the doctor said maybe if you, um, cycling might be a good kind of midpoint between, yeah you know, it'll get blood circulating, but you won't be tramping up and down on your feet. And this like amazing woman that I was staying with her and her boyfriend. And she just said, all right, you can take my bike. This was in, um, Ulm in South Germany. And I said, well, how long can I ride it for? And she said, well, the limit is Vienna. Um, (laughs) but when you finish with it, leave it in a safe place with someone you're staying with, make sure it's locked and I'll come and pick it up in the summer and cycle it home again. And so that kind of got me through that little, I think it was a week or so I was on that, on that bike. So yeah, I definitely learned that I was determined to do this. It, it became deeply important to me to finish and that, that, that carried me, carried me through. Amazing. Amazing to hear, and there are so many, so many examples of it in the book. But amazing to hear the kind of generosity of others that actually people are people seemed very, very willing to to help you to to give you a bed, to buy you a beer, um, which in the times that we live in is 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 hugely heartening. Um, how how did that first book change things for you as a writer? So, one, does it become easier once you've got that first? uh published piece of work to then pitch other ideas yeah yeah it does and i continued to have a good relationship with my publisher they were brought bought by another publisher who incidentally first published patrick lee fermor um john murray who i'm with now yeah and so it, yeah definitely it, it it allowed the second book and it allowed the third book hopefully it will allow a fourth which i'm pitching for um at the moment okay and it did certainly open yeah it opened things up i mean it's never there's never a kind of point where you go oh i've done it now you know i've kind of got to this position that i feel confident in um and yeah it's always a case of kind of looking ahead for the the next thing Mm. but certainly that that book was my my way through the door and helped me i mean you know i thought of myself as a as a prop as a proper in quotes writer (laughs) for the first time i'm just with something to something to build on is is a writing career 
linear. So I know as a as an actor that you you know you land the dream job and then you know don't work for six months and then you're mm. you know trying to get a a bit part in something else. And it, 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 I've I've rarely met someone who has had that kind of perfect stepping stone from from you know first thing to next thing to next thing and it's all just gone perfectly so is it linear and if it isn't how how have you learned that kind of resilience and that ability to bounce back i mean yeah my it's definitely not been linear for me um and it is yeah it is hard it, especially as you as you get older kind of going from one thing to the next i think your kind of um ability to endure that does decrease a little bit and so I've, I think that the main thing is just diversifying what I do. I also edit and do some teaching and do some mentoring and have done all kinds of, you know, odd jobs within that as well, or kind of outside yeah. writing too. So I always, you know, writing is the main thing, but it might not be always how I am able to make my money, you know, mm -hmm. kind of consistently. So yeah, definitely it, it, and it's also, it's a case of kind of looking for other work for money, but also I, I don't know if I want to just sit at a laptop all day, every day. Um, yeah. It's good to, to do things that involve being around people and, you know, just having different experiences. So yeah, um, yeah definitely find oh. that diversifying really helps kind of financially and mentally as well. Yeah. How did how did you diversify from non-fiction into fiction? So you your your first novel Red Smoking Mirror has been published and you you said it when we started the conversation that you know you the the fiction thing was always there. Did you have to convince your agent, your your publishers that you could do fiction as well as you could do non-fiction? Yeah, I found it was a very different, a very different thing. And the way that you, you have to kind of have written a novel before you can start pitching it really. Um, right. Especially if it's your, if it's your first one, yeah. unlike the, the nonfiction I've done where you have the idea and then you might get an advance based on the idea in order to do the, the actual work. Yeah. But this novel was, yeah. And I just idea that I'd kind of been really obsessed with for for years i mean it's not very it's not a very long book but the work that went into it and the time that went into it is by far more than i've put into anything else and it went through i mean two uh two times when i genuinely said it's defeated me i can't do it you know and and kind of you know gave up on it and put it put it aside um and produced you know tens of thousands of words of of nonsense that I couldn't do anything with. <laughs> and it was extremely frustrating to me because I, I knew that the core of this idea was good and I just could not find the voice and I couldn't find the characters. And then it came, I mean, this kind of sounds quite cliched during the lockdowns when mm -hmm. all the travel writers I knew couldn't travel. And I know more than one who, who suddenly turned themselves into a novelist um, <laughs> during that time. But for me, it was, that was when it, it, it suddenly came together 
and I realized that I could start from a completely different point. My agent was very good. Um, and she said, I gave her this kind of sort of rambling, know, thousands of words. Um, and, and she said, you know, I, I love it, but it's quite kind of plodding. And she (laughs) said, what do you, what do you actually want? What, what story do you want to tell? And I realized that the story I wanted to tell was literally the last two weeks of what until then had been a 30 year kind of epic of like one thing happening after another covering decades. And she said, well, why don't you just start in those two weeks and tell the thing that you want to tell? Um, and that kind of unlocked something and really just, it it suddenly seemed quite easy. It's like, oh, I'll just, yes. Why don't I just tell the story I want to tell? It's that simple. And so it was a very different process. It was a lot harder than any of the travel books I've done, but satisfying in, in a completely different way. And it was very exciting that the thing happened that I'd always heard novelists talk about and maybe had never quite believed that characters take on a life of their own and start doing and saying things that you don't expect them to do. And that started happening and it was thrilling. So it's like, Oh, this works, you know, imagination's real. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So it was, I'm very pleased to have got that, um, got that written and got that published because there were many times when I thought, Either I, I genuinely can't write this or nobody's going to publish it. Having having finished it and focused on that time period, like has that opened up the possibility of like 10 prequels that are going to get us to where this one starts? Or is, is, that, is that on the cards? No. <laughs> no, it's not. All the, all the stuff that I cut out is in that book. It's just referred to in memories and references it's all part of the you know the the world building of that book and without it i definitely couldn't have written those final two weeks if i hadn't done the the hard graft of writing all the other stuff before yeah but it has um certainly made me want to write more novels and and also kind of expand that you know it's not it's sort of speculative history or alternate history red smoking Mm. era and yeah. the idea of writing something that's more kind of leaning into fantasy speculative writing is is very appealing because it's so fun and I had such a good time with it. And I think it's a nice balance as well, writing nonfiction, you know, which is normally about me doing stuff doing and stuff, going yeah. to real places. Um, and then something that isn't about me and isn't about this time or this world. Mm. So I, I spend a lot of time working with leaders and, and sales teams on on the idea of, you know, storytelling and how to tell powerful stories. So it'd be really remiss of me to have you on the show and not kind of geek out a little bit about this. Um, for for nonfiction, because most of most of the people that I work with are, you know, are telling a nonfiction story. What are some of the principles that you think listeners should be thinking about to to create a compelling narrative? Well, um, I think a a lot of, one of the things that I really try and get across when I teach 
kind of travel nature writing um is who like you have to be a good travel companion you know or a good somebody who's leading the reader and someone that you want to spend time with mm -hmm. i think is really important um just having that kind of trust in that the writer is is a good guide and that's you know it's a hard thing to kind of teach because it's a it, it does come down to taste and mm -hmm. not everybody likes the same voice and some people find you know some voices insufferable and some people love them but i think it's a good principle to apply to yourself when you're trying to tell a story in that you know what 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 kind of guide am i being mm. so maybe that's i think the first thing to get right and the the voice you have and it makes me think also something we haven't talked about but i don't do so much of this now but i used to do a lot of storytelling like um performance stuff which was always yeah. unscripted you know often kind of retellings of traditional stories or, or some that were my own but i never wrote them down and something about that kind of it, it's similar to when i talked about traveling having the sort of skeleton structure mm -hmm. but then allowing yeah. lots of space for kind of flexibility it was definitely the same with telling stories that you, you have to know what happens in the story but you don't have to tell it the same way twice and there Every will always time. be kind of tangents and the words change and descriptions change as they come to you and that yeah. depends on being responsive to the audience and kind of picking up on what they're what they like what they don't like what they're getting what they're excited yeah. by so i think that as well just remember that, that you're speaking to an audience whether you're speaking or writing or whatever yeah um and you're it's not just you kind of shouting from your mm. lonely tower into the into the void i think a lot of people are, are almost scared about the term storytelling you know oh I, I, I can't do that i i can't tell stories I, I think sometimes just reframing it as as narrative is kind of easier that applies more to the kind of logical brain that we we need that in very simplistic terms a beginning a middle and end we've got to go on a on a recognizable journey um with the character one one thing that i think you've been brilliant at in your writing is setting context but in a very succinct way so in uh, walking the woods and the water and in where the wild winds are i i get a very um tangible sense of place and um an environment in the language that that you use uh, how how have you done that or is that just instinctive or something that you have to refine um i think it's i mean i've done it by trying to genuinely tune into a place and again that sounds a bit vague tuning into a place but it underlies a lot of what i write and also what i teach as well and i've got sort of practical techniques for doing that that are quite kind of meditative practices of mm -hmm. listening and standing still and looking in a certain way and then the trick and the tricky thing is then conveying just conveying the kind of 
the vivid the vivid descriptions that kind of make people feel something mm. rather than just a you know it's hard to read just kind of flat observation of what somebody's looking at yeah um, so it's tr trying to find the points that that lift it up and make it mm -hmm. inhabitable for for the reader i think yeah. all I, all, I don't really know how to explain how to do that it's just trying to write in a way that i find something that makes sense to me and that i would want to want to read yeah there there seems to be um, and... go on oh, i was just gonna say because it occurred to me from what you said before people are scared of storytelling what i found i've been teaching travel and nature writing to some students at bristol university and what worked really well is that the first the first class you know because people come with such kind of hang-ups i think about yeah. writing and producing things and sharing it understandably and so i i just told a couple of anecdotes really from my walk across europe a couple of things that i found illuminating amusing interesting um in, in and you know didn't script that at all just told them a few stories and then the point of that was that's all we're doing here is imagine that you're you've just got back from holiday or a trip or an interesting experience you're sitting around a friend's dinner table or with friends in the pub tell a story like you would then mm -hmm. and then got them in pairs doing that and suddenly because people were relaxed and everybody knows what it's like to hear somebody telling an anecdote in a pub yeah and it, it's it's very good at kind of unlocking that sort of oh god i have to write something it's just mm. like you're just telling friends a story and sharing something that you want to share that at the heart of it that's it's no more complicated than that mm. although of course it is once you get into of course once you, know, you but but, it, the but, but at that the principle is simple and and the i think the craft is something that you can you know refine and refine and refine but you don't in 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 general life if your objective in the world is not to sell novels or, or travel writing you can you can create such human connection with very with very simple story and i and i think the thing that i draw out from from your writing but also from the other observations that that i've made is that it's about detail and and like engaging the senses not not in a frivolous and kind of over the top way but if you can if you can help your audience make an imaginative leap if they can see what it's like or smell what it's like or taste what it's like then then you ground them in that environment so much quicker than here's a you know here's a checklist uh of, mm. of things um in in pitching that kind of opening hook and closing statement are, are really vital. And it, it seems to me as a lay person to be the same in, in a book, you know, you've got to, you've got to get your reader past the first 10 pages to want to continue. And you want to leave them with something at the end that feels meaningful rather than just like everything doing a sort of slow fade to black. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you, have, have you got anything that you can, share around how you've crafted 
the beginnings and and the ends uh, of your work or or have they have they just been obvious i think well i mean certainly for ends um i think if you know exactly where you're going with a story you're telling of any length um you lose interest in it so again it's just having that bit of flexibility i don't like to know because if you know what the end is kind of what's the point in doing the journey what's the point in yeah in 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 writing it if you're not intrigued to discover the mystery that you think is out there but you're not quite sure um so i think maybe just carrying a sense of that that mystery through i mean this and this kind of another this is quite a kind of obvious thing to say but and they talk about it a lot especially in travel writing but the idea of a quest is a yeah. useful thing to think of what's the what's the quest what am i looking for and it might be something obvious or it might be something quite quite subtle but mm. what's the what's the thing being discovered here whether that's in the external world or inside me or in something else yeah yeah so i think and it was the same for the um with the novel i kind of knew what i had a, a last image but i didn't know how to get there or quite what it what it meant or how it had happened so there was always that sense of like i'm intrigued to find out what's going on so that's I why how you get there that's why i'm inviting the reader to come on this journey with me because i think they will be intrigued too that's amazing uh Nick, it's been fascinating talking to you and I, I could continue the conversation uh, all day. Um, I, I'd like to wrap things up with, with a final question. If you could go back and give that six-year-old boy with his, uh, with his folded comic, uh, what was it, the panker, uh, <laughs> one piece of advice, what, what would you say to him? Um... I think I'd say just maybe he wouldn't understand this, but I'd say that your life will not last forever. So if there are panker stories you want to tell, just get on and tell them now and don't leave everything for some kind of future time that seems unimaginably distant to you now. But of course the six-year-old wouldn't hear that because life <laughs> does last forever when you're six but i think yeah just like try and do as many of the things that you love and that excite you and intrigue you as you possibly can amazing advice nick thank you so much for joining me on the podcast thanks for listening to the why life's a pitch podcast if you'd like to improve the way you pitch and communicate i'm giving away a special gift to all my listeners We've developed the Pitching with Impact Scorecard to help you benchmark your pitch performance in six key areas. It will take you less than five minutes to complete and you'll receive a detailed personalized report packed full of insights and ideas to help you improve and grow. Just head over to dominiccolenso.com forward slash scorecard to get started.